Taking down statues of historical figures has been one of the most identifiable elements of cancel culture. Background, political affiliation, outlook, and a variety of other factors tend to determine people's feelings on this issue, and very frequently, they tend to be very strong feelings. In this episode, we're going to take a look at a Torah perspective on cancel culture. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out, and do us a favor by liking and sharing this podcast and leaving us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. I'm going to begin with the story. Today's topic is cancel culture. A Torah perspective on cancel culture. I'll tell you all the story. Once upon a time, I was in North Carolina. I go to North Carolina almost every summer for the last many, many, many years. I say it's about 15 years, uh, more than that. Many years. We go to North Carolina, the Outer Banks. Our family goes to, to vacation. It's fantastic. And usually the way you get there is you're on the major highways. But every now and again, if you're leaving or coming on a Sunday, beach town, bad traffic, there's an accident, ways has you get off the highway. And I'm kind of taking the back road and, you know, kind of to avoid the I-95, if you've ever been on I-95 on the East Coast, not the 95 here, 95 here ain't nothing like I-95 on the East Coast. So we're taking the back routes and we're on U.S. Route 1. Now, if you know anything about U.S. Route 1, it goes from, I don't know, Bangor, Maine, all the way down to, you know, Chile. I don't know. It goes all the way down. And I'm, I'm driving to North Carolina, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, this is, I'm going to say, 15 years ago, before cancel culture was a thing. And I'm driving, and I'm getting onto U.S. Route 1 in North Carolina. And lo and behold, you know what it's called? You know what the name of the highway is? It's called the Jefferson Davis Memorial Highway. Now, for those who don't know, who aren't, for the uninitiated, who is Jefferson Davis? So I, I'm a little bit of a student, amateur student of American history. Who is Jefferson Davis? Who knows? Anyone? Raise your hand for 100 points. President of the Confederacy. Our president. <laughs> Say our friends from Tennessee, right? The president of the Confederacy. And I remember driving, and again, cancel culture wasn't a thing. And I'm like driving, I'm like, Jefferson Davis Highway? Jefferson Davis was the greatest trader in the history of the United States of America. Significantly bigger trader than Benedict Arnold. Jefferson Davis, you know, probably should have been hanged from a sour apple tree. What are we doing? What in the world are we doing? You know, naming highways. After a traitor, you know, ignore nothing to do with cancel culture. This is before cancel culture was a thing. And I remember I was just, I couldn't figure it out. Just purely from an American history perspective, it really, I couldn't, I just couldn't figure it out. And right then and there, I became the first advocate of cancel culture. We need to change the highway. We need to take down statues. No, but it, it really did. I remember it, it was just such an interesting moment. It's kind of my personal introduction to like the topic of, of cancel culture. And, you know, I, I figured, well, you know, it's certainly a hot button issue these days. The last year or two, uh, you know, has, has been a real thing. Um, you know, just last week, for those of you following the news, you know, our good friend Whoopi Goldberg, you know, had an insensitive comment, you know, cancel Whoopi, cancel this, cancel that. What's, you know, and it's an interesting thing. So just a couple of introductions before we really get started. One thing that I found is, you know, when it comes to, you know, this specific issue, cancel culture, and for that matter, many, you know, hot button issues, people tend to have very strong opinions. 
And oftentimes those strong opinions are very predictable. Person fits on this side of the political spectrum, they're gonna feel that way. Person who feels lands on that side of the political spectrum, they'll feel a different way. And that's great, Mazel tov. Everyone should have your strong opinions and, and that's great. Sometimes, all the time, whenever I go and when I, when I see these kinds of current event kind of issues, you know, really our knee-jerk reaction with a little bit of humility and, and, you know, a sense of bigger perspective should be, well, I know what I think about it. I know what you think about it. What does God think about it? Let's look at some Torah sources to try to at least give us some context on, on the issue. And really throughout this whole series of, of um, hot topics, particular tonight, I want to kind of look at the, what the Torah talks about and kind of break down some of these issues. Now, when it comes to something like cancel culture, I think there's a tremendous amount of confusion for two reasons. And the reason why it's like hot button, I mean, have you ever seen people get very heated about cancel culture? 99 times out of 99 times, the two participants are not talking to one another. Why? Because it's an ambiguous topic for two reasons. Number one is, and this is, you know, people have asked me, you know, a lot about cancel culture. Let's talk specifically about taking down monuments, taking down monuments, statues, as being someone, you know, people think, oh, Rabbi Matthews, he's the American history guy. Not that I am, but I like American history. So people ask, Rabbi, what's your opinion on it? My always my first thing, why I think people, it's such an ambiguous thing, is before we even talk about, you know, what the Torah has to say about it, is to recognize, number one, not all statues are created equal. Different people in American history or world history, you know, not everyone is the same. For example, I don't think anyone in this room or hopefully no one, in, no one in North America should have the following opinion. We should erect statues to Adolf Hitler, right? That's obscene, that's absurd. Adolf Hitler was a villain on every level. And if someone doesn't understand that and thinks we should be erecting you know, statues for Adolf Hitler, this class is not for you, I'm gonna be wasting your time. It's, it, that's a black and white, I, that's not, if you don't, if you can't see that, I, don't, I, I think it's being, Kind of unreasonable. Like Adolf Hitler is not someone who should be celebrated. He should be someone who's condemned. Well, there's a big difference between Adolf Hitler and Thomas Jefferson, actually, or Andrew Jackson, or um, Tom Jefferson Davis, or a couple other people that I'm going to want to talk about in a moment. To recognize before we even get into the issue, it's not one size fit all. Different people and different issues are different. And you kind of have to treat all these situations case by case. That's number one, why I think oftentimes people are just not talking to one another. Some Mr. A thinks we should be taking down a statue. Mr. B says, no, maybe we don't have the same outlook. We're not talking about the same person. You know, not all situations are different, are the same. All situations are different. Too many double negatives, but I think everyone got what I'm saying. Number one. Number two, when we talk about cancel culture, it's not a singular question. In other words, let's stick to one particular subject, Andrew Jackson. Uh, we're gonna go through a couple different people. But to recognize when we talk about, you know, should we take down his statue? Should we, you know, cancel him? There are several factors at play. It's not a one question. It's, I guess, a broad topic that I think a lot of times What's helpful is to realize there are a lot of like little subcategories or considerations. And what I've tried to do, and it's not exhaustive by any level at all, is to sort of break 
the issues down and kind of isolate variables. Like, what about this issue in a vacuum? What, do we, what does the Torah say about that? What is a Jewish perspective about individual issues? So if someone says, Andrew Jackson's statue should come down, another person says, no, it shouldn't. Realize, what are you asking? That there might be seven things at play over here, and you're talking about one of them, and you're talking about a second one. Try to isolate the issues. I'm going to be talking a lot about taking down statues, just because I, I pardon the pun, but I feel that's like concrete. It's like a concrete example, and I recognize when it comes to cancel culture, we could be canceling Whoopi Goldberg, we could be canceling, you know, Andrew Jackson, we could be canceling a million things. I'm going to primarily, not exclusively, um, oh, let me say the majority we're going to talk about statues. I just think they're historical figures to identify specific issues um, with one caveat or two caveats. When it comes to something like statues, monuments, and I was trying to think here, like, what does the Torah just... Ignore cancel culture. Imagine we're talking about a saint, the greatest person in the world. Do we put up stat? What does the Torah even say about putting up monuments? Statues, graven images are not a particularly Jewish idea to begin with, but I'm not going to get kind of into that concept. I'm going to kind of work under the assumption, but I do want to acknowledge it's, it's sort of an important question that has to be dealt with. Like, who cares? Or what's the value of erecting a statue to begin with? Why do we care about this? I, you know, we can think of a couple things. Maybe there's something called national pride, national pride in general. We want to build a monument. Uh, you know, we want to big build a statue, a memorial in recognition, in honor of of significant people in our in our history, in our in the history of our country. Maybe there's an element which is a very Jewish idea, hakara so gratitude. You know, to people who came before us who set the stage for for our lives today. Um, and those things kind of need to be considered like, okay, so I've got to, I'm not sure how to like quantify the value of building a statue. Let's say building a statue is going to offend one person, two people, three people, four people. You know, the Torah puts a lot of weight on not making people feel uncomfortable. Well, at what expense? I don't know how to quantify building statues. So I just kind of want to flag that, but I, I don't want to get stuck on that. Let's just work for the argument's sake. Statues, monuments, you know, maybe we shouldn't be building them because of, you know, graven image issues. I don't exactly know what service they have, what purpose they serve, but let's assume that they're, they're a real thing. Does that make sense? Everyone with me? Okay. I guess you'd start without even really kind of, I guess it's more still also as a, as a background. Don't think that like cancel culture is like totally against the, the Torah tradition. Totally against, that's not true. There's a verse in Proverbs, a verse in Mishlei, that says, uh, it says, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, Vishem Rishayim Yirka. Yirka, Yirka, Yirka. We should, the memory of the righteous should be for a blessing. And that's, you know, a, a very well-known verse. The second half of the verse is, Vishem Rishayim Yirka, the, the name of the wicked shall be, a, a, should really means should rot. It means should be obliterated. I believe it's based on that verse. And, and I say it halfway as a joke, but it's not a joke, right? Famously, where do we apply this principle? We do it twice a year. Purim. We say the name of Haman. We, we cancel Haman. We're trying, what do we say? And when we say, we talk about the Nazis. If you ever heard say, we talk about Adolf Hitler. People usually end, they'll say Adolf Hitler. Yemach Shemo Vizichro. May God obliterate his memory. You know, so and in Judaism, there is a concept, you know, we, we don't 
We want them obliterated. We want them canceled. We want everything about them to be, you know, destroyed. So it's not like it's a completely foreign idea. The question is, is how do we, I guess, apply it? Or how does this like really make any sense? So I want to go through a handful, maybe one I got, depending on our time, I've identified one, two, three, four, five, six different issues that we need to consider. There are probably a dozen, three dozen more, but I came up with six. We'll see how many we'll get through. And I'm going to go through each one of them by trying to isolate a specific variable. And we're going to talk about specific examples. My first example, first statue, our first monument. Now, I should preface it. I'm sorry, folks. I'm from the D.C. area. And what do you have in D.C.? Monuments. Everything about D.C. is statues, monuments, memorials. The whole city is got a statue for this guy, a monument for that guy. We dedicate this for the other guy. It's all over the place. One of the classic monument statues that you'll go to, it happens to be some beautiful work of art. If Again, I don't know. Again, we're not supposed to celebrate graven images. So I don't know how that works, but it's beautiful. Is if you go in D.C., right along the Tidal Basin, highly recommend going in March. I actually did this last year. I haven't been there in a billion in one years. I was in the D.C. area, you know, right around mid-March to see the cherry blossoms. Everyone ever go to D.C.? You, you get the cherry blossoms come out. They're on the Tidal Basin, right along the edge of the Potomac. They bloom for about 20 minutes. You've got to catch them. It's unreal, right? They literally, they bloom for 20 minutes and then it rains, it snows, it gets windy and they're gone. I was there, it was on Passover. It was beautiful. The cherry blossoms were out. We saw them stunning. I'll show you the pictures. But if you go right along the Tidal Basin, you'll find the statue for Martin Luther King Jr. It's a pretty cool work. Anyone ever seen it? It's like, it's like him standing. He's coming out, a piece of, out of a piece of granite. You've seen it. It's a beautiful work. I just finished reading a biography of Martin Luther King Jr. It's called, uh, I believe it's Bearing His Cross. It's a Pulitzer Prize winner. It's, it's, the, uh, it's somewhat controversial, but it's probably the best book written on Dr. King. Martin Luther King Jr. was, in my opinion, an absolute American hero. He was. There's no way around it. He was a remarkable person. And there we have a statue commemorating Martin Luther King. I want to share with you a passage, a passage that I've shared before. It's, it's a remarkable insight. If you recall the story, we know the story, the Jews' exodus, the exodus from Egypt. If you read the commentaries carefully, you'll take note, not all the Jews made it out of Egypt. You ever notice, you ever see anyone familiar with that passage? You'll note many of the Jews were not worthy of God's redemption. And we were taught many Jews died out during the plague of, of uh, pardon me, during the plague of Choshech, of darkness, or according to other opinions, different times. But a significant amount of Jews did not make it out of Egypt. One of the most insightful questions, I love this question, asked by the Rush, writing in the 1300s. He asks, Yesh Lushal, one can ask the following question. We know all the evil, the wicked of the Jewish people, those who are not worthy, they die, they die out during this period of darkness. Those who are not worthy of God's redemption, they die out. Yet, we find two biblical villains who we know were alive in Egypt before the redemption, and we do find them 
Later on, during the Jewish experience in the desert, which means they were part of the people of the Exodus, they did make it out. And these two villains are two people named Dasan and Aviram. If you recall, Dasan and Aviram, they are two of the lieutenants during Korah's rebellion later on in the biblical narrative. They are kind of the head of the head uh, rabble rousers. These are no good people. And we also find that before the Jewish redemption, Dasan and Aviram were big troublemakers and really opposed Moshe Rabbeinu Moses' leadership. Asks Rush a remarkable question. If we know the wicked didn't make it out of Egypt, how did Dasan and Aviram, what were they worthy of? How did they get out? It's a great question. Says Rush, a remarkable answer. Yeshlamar, you can explain. Even though they were wicked, they were terrible people, they did not give up hope of God's redemption. Meaning, they were wicked, they were Rashaim, they were evil, but they prayed and yearned, and they believed in God's redemptive ability. They prayed during their Shemona Asrei, please, God, get us out of Egypt. And in that merit, they made it out. I've always found this to be one of the most remarkable insights. Because, you see, in life, we like our villains being villains, and we like our heroes being heroes. We like Moses being a saint. We like the pharaohs being the, you know, the Disney character, you know, villains with the long pointy beards and the evil cackle, and everything about them is bad. Reality is, in life, there are very, very, very few heroes, and there are very, very, very few villains. 99.999% of humanity is somewhere in the middle. And sort of point observation number one, I don't think this is a brilliant insight, but it's something to just crystallize in our mind. When we talk about cancel culture, get it. You know, sometimes some people's transgressions are really, really evil. Adolf Hitler, I don't care if he gave flowers to his mom, he's a villain of the worst order. You understand that. But to recognize as we move farther and farther away down the level and scale of absolute Disney character villain, and we get to people who had terrible indiscretions, I'm not apologizing for anything. Recognize that people are typically not black or white. Pardon my pun. Right? People tend to not be black and white when it comes to being good or evil. People tend to be gray. Or better yet, people have. I've done a lot of black. I've done a lot of white. People are not perfect. People are complicated. People do both very, very good things and very, very bad things. Does that mean we should be taking down monuments, not taking down monuments? Again, it's case by case, but always recognize there are people who've done very, very good, who've got a little bit of bad in their resume or significant bad in their resume, and people who've got a lot, a lot of bad in their resume, who've also got a little bit of good in their resume. And that, again, creates this ambiguity of how do we deal with, you know, when we talk about cancel culture, recognizing we like to villainize and demonize the bad and praise and herald the good, recognize that's not real life. Read this book, Bearing the Cross. It's a remarkable book. And you read about the fact Martin Luther King Jr. was not the saint that people turned him into, even during his own lifetime. He was a womanizer, which was well-documented, he was probably, he was pretty much an egregious sexist today, using today's name. He was a sexist. He thought women were inferior. I mean, I don't know if he would have articulated that, but he was a womanizer, a sexist. Uh, he had a lot of real, real deep flaws. 
And I guess the question that needs to be asked is, should we be taking down the statue, the monuments of Martin Luther King Jr.? We got every major city in the United States of America has an MLK, MLK street. Should we be canceling Martin Luther King Jr.'s day? It's an interesting thing. The epilogue of that book is about a paragraph and a half long. It is profoundly deep. Forget the name of the author. Again, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book. So this guy was, knew what he was doing. And uh, I don't have the exact text in front of me, but he basically writes the following. Martin Luther King Jr. was, it's a, this, a mistake that people make is to think that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to project the image of St. Louis. He did not. He was very open about the fact that he was a deeply imperfect person. He acknowledged it. He stated it. He knew it. And he was very open and, unco and uncomfortable with the fact that people viewed him as a messiah when he acknowledged he had a lot of personal flaws. And what's really interesting is the end of the book basically argues, I don't know if it was the author's point of view, but I think he was saying like, if, if Martin Luther King Jr. would see what people have, how they've totally turned him into this saintly figure, Martin Luther King Jr. probably been tremendously uncomfortable with that for two reasons. Number one, when we expect our leaders, when we expect people who are the real influential people, when we expect them to be absolute perfect saints, so we realize, well, you know why we live in such an imperfect society today? Well, we don't have perfect leaders. We don't have, we don't have people that rise to that standard. And we sort of come to this stagnation of, well, you know why we live in a place, we live in a society while we just don't have leaders that are perfect anymore. And that's a mistake. Recognize some of the greatest men of all time, and women for that matter, are deeply imperfect because they've done a lot of good, but they've also done a lot of bad. And the second point, which is probably the more profound, is a lot of times we don't ourselves accomplish the great things that we think we can, that we might be able to accomplish because we look at our flaws and we say, look, I'm a deeply flawed person. I've got all these limitations. I've got all these transgressions. I've got all these imperfections. How could it possibly be that I'm going to be the one to make a big difference in the world? How is it possible that I'm going to be the one to do great things when after all, I've got X, Y, and Z massive flaws? And that's a mistake because people are mixtures of good and bad. And we can't let our transgressions, our imperfections, our deep flaws, you know, from holding us back to accomplishing great things. So I think it's an important perspective. Perspective number one, do I think Martin Luther King Jr.'s statue should come down because of his indiscretions? He was a terrible woman, a very well do document documented. He was a sexist. Should we take down his statue? I don't think. My personal opinion, strong opinion, we should not. But what do you mean, Rabbi? He's done X. What about all those transgressions? I get it. I get it. You got to take the good with the bad to some degree. And I think in his case, he really was a, a tremendous figure in American, again, from an American history perspective. And with the recognition, I'm not claiming that he's the great, he's, he's a saint. He's not. Observation number one. Okay, let's move on to our next statue. Oh, this is my favorite. I talked about this on the High Holidays. So for those who are there with us on the High Holidays, this will be a review, but it's worth your time. If you happen to be going to Warrington, Virginia, 
I suggest you stop at the intersection of Waterloo Street and Ashby Street. Because at the intersection of that, those two little streets in Warrington, Virginia, it's in Fauquier County, kind of near, uh, kind of general DC area. But if you go to that area, you will see one statue, a monument, it's a, it's a what are those called things? The ob obelisks, obosculus, ob ob obelisks. Thank you, I can't pronounce these words. You see them in print, you have no idea how to pronounce it. An obelisk with an engravement and an image and a dedication and a plaque and a memorial for my good friend, John Mosby. So if you were at our explanatory service on Rosh Hashanah, you should remember the story of John Mosby. Who was John Mosby? I'll tell you who John Mosby was. John Mosby was one of the greatest villains of the Confederacy. John Mosby had what was called the Mosby, we got someone on the chat, someone called Mosby's Raiders. Um, what was Mosby's Raiders? I'm going to mute everyone. What was Mosby's Raiders? So we had the Confederacy, we know the Civil War, the good guys, the bad guys, the North, the South. Mosby had a detachment. He was kind of, the, I think, a captain of a regiment of about 1,500 uh, cavalry soldiers. They would ride on horseback and they would ride behind enemy lines, constantly destroying the long supply chains. We recall during the Civil War, one of the greatest challenges that General Grant had, especially as he's going deep into the South. Again, I apologize, my friends from Tennessee. He laid waste to your beautiful state. Well, not so much, but more, more, more to our friends in, in Georgia and the like. But he messed up Tennessee pretty good. General Grant would be separated often very far from his supply lines. So he would have these long baggage trains, these railroads, telegraphs to stay in communication. What would happen? John Mosby would go around with his raiders and would be constantly attacking and marauding and pillaging anything of value from behind enemy, his enemy's lines in the north. And he was ferocious. He was. One, the, the, if you read the, the, the descriptions of people at the time, he was like that, that kind of guy that, that little boys like idealized. He was tough. He had guns everywhere. He was a, you know, just like a real tough guy. The great stories, probably one of the best Civil War stories is, and he would go and he would sneak up on people because you didn't know, you never knew. You know, when you fight in an army, you know, there's the bad guy, especially back in those days, you know, you had the bad guys over here, you know, the enemies here and you would line up and you saw who were the gray coats. He was called the gray ghost people because he used to, you know, attack and then vanish back into the countryside, back into the public you know, or even into you know, civilian life. They would take off their uniforms. And one story, the legend, it's a true story. There was a death warrant out on him. Basically, he was one of the few soldiers that there was an order to kill him on site. He was just that terrifying of a person. <laughs> he was probably the most deeply hated, um, probably one of the most deeply hated people of, you know, in the entire Confederacy. It was John Mosby. And there's this one story how he, he broke into the, the North, uh, you know, the Union. Um, there was a small detachment. There was a general lying in bed. and you know, Mosby knock, you know, walks into the room with his like revolvers out, wakes up the general. And the general says, you know, who are you? Why are you waking me up? I'm a general. You can't wake me up. Who are you? And to which Mosby says, have you ever heard of John Mosby? To which the general says, have you, like, have you found the scoundrel? I, know, I think the line was, oh, have you got the scoundrel? To which Mosby says, no, but he's got you. 
And it was like, great line, right? He was a villain. He was hated of all the people in the South. He's one of the most vile people. And here we have a statue in good old Warrington VA for John Mosby. Should we take down the statue? You know, I, by the way, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. I think they should be renaming the Jefferson Highway, Jefferson Davis Highway. I still believe that. I think it's crazy. I think it's insane. I, I don't know how like, our country can allow. We wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you don't name highways after traitors. Why do we have a John, a John Mosby obelisk? Obelisk? Thank you. I apologize. Obelisk. Should we be knocking down the John Mosby obelisk? One of the most beautiful passages in the Torah. Let's see if I can find it. We know the story in the Torah. We know the story to, we just alluded to, the rebellion of Korah. Speaking of rebellions, read the story of the rebellion of Korah. You know, Korah, he's the, he goes ahead and he, he accuses Moses. He says, Moses is hoarding all the power. Says Moses, your 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 nepotism, your Aaron, you made him the priest. Then Korach goes ahead and he slanders Moses, creates a rebellion, and a huge segment of the Jewish people end up following Korach. And it was a national tragedy. Korach is punished. We know the story. Yet the verse tells us, find it. I don't think I can find it quick enough. So. You'll trust me on this. But the Torah later on, a few weeks, you know, shortly after, backhandedly alludes to the fact, B'nai Korach lo mesu. When God goes ahead and after the rebellion of Korach, God destroys Korach, he destroys the rebellion, the, the rabble-rousers, those who are in charge of the rebellion were killed by God. Yet the verse tells us, B'nai Korach lo mesu. The children of Korach, they do not die. And indeed, if you look in the Tehillim, and I've never noticed, if you look in the Tehillim and the Psalms, there are several Psalms that are called Lam Natseach Livnei Korach Mizmar. There are several Psalms, several chapters in the Tehillim that are composed by none other than these children of Korach. Now, it's very clear from, you read the rabbinic literature, you read the Midrashim, you read the sources, these B'nai Korach, these children of Korach, were deeply involved and committed to the rebellion. They were deeply committed to their father, to Korach, and to rebelling. Yet, Lomesu, they do not die. What happened? Why not? Everyone else was killed. The Medrash tells us, you know what happened to B'nai Korach? The last moment, the showdown at the OK Corral, when Moses you know, really calls Korach, you know, and puts his finger on him and says, you really going to cross this threshold of rebellion? Are you going to cross the line? At a certain point, this is a line of no return. Once you cross this line, I'm telling you, you're, it's, you're not going to be able to make it back. And, you know, Korach and his 215 henchmen and many others, they crossed that line. You know who didn't cross the line? Figuratively. You know who didn't cross? His children, the Bnei Korach, the last moment. They said, you know what? This is a mistake. This is a mistake. We can't, you know what? We're doing the wrong thing. They said, no, we're backing up. This is incorrect. And it's one of the most fundamental principles in all of Judaism. And it's something that we talk about cancel culture. It's something that needs to be deeply understood and something that, that I think our society needs to calm down a little bit is, 
to recognize people make mistakes. B'nai Korach, the children of Korach, they made a terrible mistake. If you contextualize it, if you rebel against Moses, if you go ahead and you accuse, you say, Moses, you know, I think you're a sham. I think you're a phony. I think you're a fraud, Moses. You know what that's called in Judaism? It's called heresy. We recite in the, in the Yud Gimel Ikram, we recite 13 principles of Jewish faith. We believe in the divinity of Moses and his Torah. And here you have the children of Korach. They crossed that line. They originally were on Korach's team, which means they were in violation of one of the deepest principles in all of Judaism. It was an act of heresy. Yet, guess what they did? They changed. You know why? Because people can change. It's one of the most fundamental ideas, and that's why we talked about it in the High Holidays. So the High Holidays is all about shuva, repentance. People make mistakes. That's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but it is okay because we can change. We could repent. If you recall the end of the story of John Mosby, for those who recall from the explanatory service, if you don't, you need to come back more, right? Sir John Mosby is after the war, war ends, civil war ends, union wins, South loses. There were a few people, you know, Grant, it was a bit of a scandal, but everyone got over it. Grant pardoned, he basically paroled the entire South. As long as you take a loyalty oath, you take a loyalty oath to the union, you know, he didn't, all the soldiers who fought, not, not to the, you know, I don't want to oversimplify it, but to all the soldiers who fought and to General Lee, he essentially paroled everyone. And he said, as long, you know, go back to your fields, go plow your fields, go home. And that's basically angered a lot of the rabble-rousers in the North. They wanted everyone to be hanged from that sour apple tree. There were a few people who it was just unclear if the parole would apply to. Peoples like Jefferson Davis and John Mosby. John Mosby was a wanted man because he, was, he had created such, so much anger, so much resentment in the North and the army. People, he, had to, he basically had to go into hiding because he did not think that his... He was paroled. The people just hated him so much. Fast forward, what happens? He, you know, Ulysses Grant goes ahead and reassures him. He writes him a, pro- a personal letter, basically saying that I, Ulysses Grant, you know, five-star general, hereby certified, no one should harm John Mosby. He paroled. He made his oath of allegiance. Let him be. And John Mosby was deeply touched by it. And you fast forward to the year 1868. 1868, when Ulysses Grant is running for president, and Ulysses Grant needed some supporters fighting the Democrats, running against the Democrats in 1868, basically wanted to continue essentially slavery, not slavery, but, you know, tremendous repression of the blacks and, and, and really set the country back. You know, guess what John Mosby did? John Mosby basically realized he was wrong his entire service, everything that he fought for, everything he stood for, he recognized it was a terrible mistake. And he campaigned for Ulysses Grant. He became a Republican. Back then, there were, you know, the Republicans were the Liberal Party and the Democrats were the racists. And he campaigned for Grant. He became his campaign manager in Virginia. Why? I'll tell you why. People change. And when we go ahead and we look at people who make mistakes and we say, cancel them, recognize, you know, people do change. John Mosby was a changed man. He was eventually appointed, I think, ambassador to some, he ended up having a very big role in the United States government. I think he was like, 
I don't know, he had a very prestigious job. He changed. I'll tell you, I'll give an example. I'm going to get my head chopped off. I'm going to be a little controversial. Whoopi Goldberg. I do not think she should be canceled. Do I agree with what she said? No. Horrible. People make mistakes. I don't know. I have no idea. She comes back and try it. I feel bad. I apologize. Let her back. We're a country that should allow for forgiveness. Every time someone makes a mistake, we say off with your head, you're canceled. You know, we're not giving people opportunity for growth. I think that's a terrible mistake. One of my favorite examples, everyone remember Michael Vick? Do you remember the story of Michael Vick? Yeah. It's horrible. Do you remember that? Michael Vick, the most talented quarterbacks. If you ask we're talking about Martin Luther King and race and the whole issue of cancer culture. Ask black athletes today who they idolized growing up. They're going to tell you Michael Vick. He was one of the first great black quarterbacks. He was fantastically gifted. I happen to think he wasn't that great. Quarterback, he was too small. But people idolized him. He was a hero. And if you remember the story, in the middle of his career, the prime of his career, right? Remember the dog Abuse allegation, not allegations, it was proven. It's horrible stuff. You know, if you're a dog person, if you're not a dog person, it was terrible. The dog fighting down in the South was terrible. Goes to prison for, I think it was like two years, a year and a half, two years. Comes out of prison. Some people never forgive. And Michael Vick understood that. And Michael Vick came back. I believe Andy Reid gave him a new job, gave him a second job. Of all people, Andy Reid, right? It was, I think it was Andy Reid in Philadelphia. I think, I think it was Andy Reid who gave him a job. He ended up playing two, two and a half more years at a very high level. And now I think today he's an analyst. I think he works for ESPN. I think I know he did for a while. Now, I don't know what's going on in Michael Vick's club. Was he contrite? Maybe he really hates dogs and still loves abusing dogs. And everything is a sham. Could be. But it might not be. Everything that you see about him, he looks contrite. He spent a year and a half in prison. Realized he got swept. Why was he in that dog fighting thing? I don't know. It was a cultural thing where he was from down south. That's what they do. And I think he, you know, I'm not apologizing for him. It was a terrible mistake. It was horrible. You watch some of those videos, you can't. They're, they're so, so disgusting. If you don't believe that Michael Vick could be contrite, I don't know. I can't judge. Only God can judge. But if you don't think it's possible for someone like that to make that kind of egregious mistake, you know, go to prison and genuinely in his heart of hearts realize, Khatasi, I made a mistake and I'm going to do better. If you don't believe that's humanly possible, you know, I feel bad for you because in Judaism, we believe deeply people can make mistakes. We have choice. We can make mistakes. We can improve. And we have to, we, you know, it's one, of, I, I think, one of the big concerns when it comes to cancel culture, particularly when we're dealing with people who are still alive. You know, it's one thing when we're talking about people who are dead who never repented and never tried changing. I get that. But particularly when we're dealing with current events, people who are alive today, be very, very careful. Be very, very careful canceling people and not allowing people for forgiveness. It's not a Jewish ideal. In Judaism, we allow for forgiveness. That's my that's item number, whatever we're up to. Can we talk about another statue, another monument? If you go back in Washington, D.C., there's another very, very popular monument, very tall also, probably the most noticeable and recognizable monument in all of Washington, D.C. And of course, I'm referring to... No, I don't want to talk about the Washington Monument. Let's talk about a different monument. 
It's right next to the Washington Monument, on the other side of the Washington Monument. You have the Lincoln Memorial. On the other side, separating, you go to the Washington Monument, and if you go to D.C., if you haven't been to D.C., you need to go. It's a beautiful set city. Have the, the, that spot, the Tidal Basin. If you're going to do one thing in D.C., don't do the museums. Go see the Washington Monument. Walk the Tidal Basin. See the Lincoln Memorial. Go walk back to the Cherry Blossoms if you're going in March. Walk along the Tidal Basin. You'll see, all, you'll see the World War II Monument. Beautiful Vietnam Memorials there. The Korean War Memorial. Absolutely beautiful places. And one of the highlights, speaking of Martin Luther King, having a dream, where does he have his dream speech? On the steps, very done very intentionally, of the Lincoln Memorial. Now, if you study the story of Abraham Lincoln and you read his attitudes to African-Americans, he was very clear. He believed Blacks were on a lesser level in terms of their humanity than whites. He absolutely did. He was what you would call an absolute racist. You read his just read his biographies, read what he feels about Blacks. He never thought that Blacks would be able to be integrated into, into real life to be, you know, you know, really living together side by side with whites. He never would have thought, he never would have imagined that. He never would have believed that. Should we go, and it's just, it's, it's not, you don't have to read, look, dig too deep to find that. Should we be going ahead and taking down the Lincoln, the Lincoln Memorial? We take the absolute racist, racist comments. Should we take down Link, the Lincoln Memorial? One of my favorite passages, great story in the Talmud. Great historian, Rabbi Beryl Wine, should live and be well, loves quoting this story in the lesson. It's a story of the great Rabbi Ashi. Rabbi Ashi, if you're familiar in the Talmud, he's actually the person, one of the two people who redacts the Talmud. So he's kind of like, not the author, but he's the person who puts the Talmud together. Him and another rabbi named Ravina. So one day, Rabbi Ashi is giving a class, and he ends up the class you know, he's got a bunch of students, and he says, all right, folks, tomorrow we're going to talk about King Menashe. Is anyone, for everyone familiar who King Menashe is? King Menashe was King Hezekiah's son. King Hezekiah, of course, was a very, very righteous, one of the most righteous leaders in the history of the Jewish people. However, he had an evil villain son named King Menashe. King Menashe is one of the greatest villains in the history of the Jewish people. He was an absolute Russia Marusha. He was evil to the core. And as Rabbi Ashi ends his class, he concludes the class, he says, tomorrow we're going to give a discussion. We're going to talk about the reign of King Menashe. And he says something disparaging about King Menashe. You know, that, you know, that evil villain. He calls him an in. And ends his class. Rabbi Ashi goes to sleep that night. And who makes a guest appearance in his dream? None other than King Menashe. And King Menashe asks Rabbi Ashi, he says, you know, what are you doing making fun of me? And Rabbi Ashi says, well, you're a villain. Rabbi Ashi, and then Rabbi Man uh, King Menashe, you know, it's all happening in dream. King Menashe goes and asks Rabbi Ashi, he says, let me ask you a question. What are you guys studying? What's like the most difficult issue that you're studying, you know, currently in the yeshiva? Like, what's, what's troubling you? You know, nothing to do with me. What's, what are, what's on your mind? And Rabbi Menashe asks, says, we're actually studying this very intricate uh, law has to do with, you know, the story of Natilat Yadayim. There's a, a law of washing your hands in certain circumstances. And there was a matter of confusion. And Rabbi Ashi says to, to King Menashe in his dream, you know, we're struggling through this particular issue. King Menashe, dream, gives him the answer. He says, this is what you do, proves it based on a source, and explains it. 
blows away Rabbi Ashi. And Rabbi Ashi says, wait a minute. I thought you were the evil villain, King Menashe. What are you doing? Like, you really just had some serious Torah scholarship and wisdom. And how could it be that a villain like you, you know, is able to resolve our deep Torah question? Now, I don't understand how dreams work, but this is all happening in a dream. King Menashe tells Rabbi Ashi, I go, let me continue. There. Rabbi Ashi basically says, he kind of extends his question. He says, look, it's very apparent from our conversation, says Rabbi Ashi, that you, King Menashe, are a brilliant Torah scholar. He says, what were you doing being a villain? I don't get it. You're such a smart, righteous person. Why are you chasing idolatry your whole life? After all, look at you. I mean, you're a brilliant Torah scholar. King Menashe tells Rabbi Ashi a powerful, very important lesson. He says, Omar Lai, he says back to Rabbi Ashi, he had this hustle. He says, if you, Rabbi Ashi, the great Rabbi Ashi, guy who wrote, writes the Talmud, had you been around during my day, you would have picked up like the hem of your coat and been running after me, chasing me to do and worship idolatry. You wouldn't have just been one of the people to worship idolatry. You would have been running after all idolatry. You wouldn't just be running. You'd be putting on your cleats, your running shoes, because you've been so focused on transgression and sin. That's the story. Rabbi Beryl Wine, remarkable historian, loves this passage. You would always say, you know, I don't exactly know what the lesson, how to understand the story. But I think, and I think he's right. I think one of the lessons that's being taught here you know, I don't want to get too deep into idolatry. I don't know how this stuff works. Nowadays, we don't have a tremendous passion for idolatry. But back then, they did. And Menashe was telling Rabbi Ashi, I don't think Menashe was justifying his sin. He wasn't justifying his idolatrous behavior. He wasn't justifying the fact that he was a bad person. What he was saying, he was teaching Rabbi Ashi an important lesson. You were not alive during my generation. And you don't know what the temptations, you don't know what life was like, you know, a thousand years earlier when I was alive. And you're using today's standards and what's today's issues to judge people in a different time. And that's not so fair because it's very likely, had you been there, you would have done the same. You just don't know. And I'll give you an example. I've got a lot, I'm not going to, you know, this isn't like a confessional. I'm not going to share with you all of my deep sins, but I'm not a perfect guy. I'll tell you one thing that I don't struggle with. I don't struggle with taking false oaths. I have, to the best of my knowledge, never taken a Torah scroll, held it up, or, you know, taken an oath using the name of God. I swear by the name of God and taken false oaths. I've got a lot of shortcomings. That's not one of them. I don't find that particularly compelling. I don't find that like, oh my gosh, I have this urge, this rage. I need to go and take oaths in the name of God. Now, taking oaths in the name of God and not following through is a terrible transgression. I've got a lot of shortcomings. That's not one of them. I'll tell you something else. As a rabbi, I do a lot of counsel. I meet a lot of people. I have never met someone ever in my life who said, Rabbi, I got something that I need you to help me. I've got, you know, everything, you know, what's going, what's wrong, you know, Bill? Well, you know, everything's good at home. I'm doing fine. I just have this one problem. 
I have this thing. I make oaths in the name of God and I can't stop, <laughs> right? Has anyone ever encountered that? No, you've never encountered that. Guess what? If you read the literature, this is a historical fact. You read the literature. Of like what were the big challenges in like the 13, 1400s? You'll see the, all the writings and all the responses. They're all railing about their communities. Everyone's taking these oaths and we need to stop. Everyone's taking false oaths and it's inappropriate. You know, all the rabbis getting up from the, you know, the bima and, you know, fire and brimstone. What are they talking about? Folks, we've got to stop taking these, these, these oaths. And you sit there like you read. This is by the way, ask, ask, you know, people who study this stuff. Like it's everyone. It's everywhere. You read in the Rishonim, these works of Jewish ethics. It's all they're talking, not all they talk about, but it's a big thing that they talk about. And like you read and you wonder like, what in the world? <laughs> what was going on? What was in the water in the 1400s? Like, what's the big, I got like, I got a no shortage of temptations and shortcomings. False oaths ain't one of them. I don't know what the answer. I have no idea. But I'll tell you, apparently in the 1400s, this was something that people struggled with. It's not fair to assume that the nisyonos, the challenges that we have today, are the same nisyonos, the same challenges that they had yesterday, and vice versa. We have to recognize kind of like every generation has their set of challenges and their set of circumstances. And generation A is different than generation B. And it's, it's not... It's not necessarily the wisest thing to do to look at a previous generation and use a certain baseline of today's generation to compare it to. Did Abraham Lincoln say things that were absolutely racist and abhorrent? The answer is an unequivocal yes. Those statements are wrong. They're terrible. But anyone who goes ahead and says, therefore, we should take down you know, the Lincoln Memorial right, is totally missing historical context. Abraham Lincoln was the savior of the blacks of his generation. The black people, generally speaking, African-Americans, called him Father Abraham. He was a savior. You know, think about where society was back then. You know, blacks were, were chattel property. And here was a man who stood up and said, this is wrong. And he literally gave up his life for that cause. Not figuratively, literally. And he changed the world. Now, did he get the football across the goal line? No. Does he have major shortcomings based on what we, I'm not to say that he shouldn't have known, but he should have known better. But if we go ahead and say, well, because he didn't get that football across the goal, we should take down the statue. That's like Menashe telling Rabbi Ashi, I'm no saint, but don't think that had you been there, you would have been better. And we all go ahead, we can look at Abraham Lincoln and say, he's a racist, the language that he uses. And, and it's true, I'm not denying that. But recognize that he was a thousand miles ahead of his society back then. And had we been there, you've been there, and the next guy been there, he probably would have been way worse than Abraham Lincoln. And anyone who thinks we should be taking down the statue of Abraham Lincoln, I don't think you have a historical perspective. I don't. Abraham Lincoln's statue, Matt's verdict, don't take it down. It's a mistake, absolute mistake. It's a mistake, I get it. His racial attitudes are not correct. But what he accomplished based on what his generation was going through is a million miles, million miles away. My next character I wanna talk about real quick, a few more minutes and we'll get out of here. It's not a statue, but it's a book that I read. 
as a child. My hunch is that most people who are watching or most people who are participating, you know, also read. I had, when I was in elementary school, I'm going to say about fifth grade. So I used to go on a van or like a bus uh, to school. I used to go to school and I grew up, grew up in Southern Maryland. It wasn't the school, it wasn't, wasn't a good fit. There was a group of kids. We used to go on a bus all the way to Baltimore for elementary school. And we had different bus drivers and some were good. Most were not. I had one bus driver for about, I don't know, half a year, three quarters of the year. But I think back of my childhood and people who were most impactful in my life. You know, a couple of teachers come to mind. Many teachers don't come to mind. Um, and there was one bus driver, Earl. Earl was one of the gentlest, nicest people I ever met in my entire life. And I remember the day he told us that he wasn't going to be driving us anymore. I cried the entire afternoon. He was such an important person in my life. Earl was a, was a great man, a great man. He taught me love. He taught me friendship. He taught me, taught me how to trust in others. He taught me what it meant to care. Earl was a black man. And I'll never forget a crazy story. I was reading the book, Huck Finn. Everyone read Huckleberry Friend by Mark Twain. I will never forget this moment, not realizing how awkward a moment this must have been. I was sitting, I liked sitting next to Earl up in the front because he was just a great guy to talk to. But at that particular bus ride, I was sitting next to a friend and I was talking about the book Huck Finn. I must have been in fifth grade at the time. I didn't understand this one part. Of the, is everyone familiar with Huck Finn? How he runs away? It's one, one of the classics. And I remember talking to one of my friends who just started the book. And I'd like, there was this one thing I didn't get with, with uh, Huck. He has his good friend, uh, I think it was uh, Tim. Tim? I think it was Tim. And I said, what is a, is the N-word? That's how he's referred to in the entire book. I'm like, what is, I didn't understand. He's like, I, I remember I was telling the story to my friend. Yeah, so Huck is going down the Mississippi River with his, you know, and I, just, and I didn't know what the word meant. I just was, I was asking, like, what is that? Can you explain it to me? And I remember my friend, like, turning purple. Because, like, Earl's listening to my conversation. And afterwards, I got off the bus, like, my friend, like, said, are you an idiot? And I'm like, yes, I am. Explain to me this. an offensive word. <laughs> I had no idea. I wish, I wish. I, I, again, I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time. Oh, how I wish I can ask Earl, you know, what were you thinking? And this little white Jewish kid was talking about this, like, right, I'm going on and on about his name, this, that, and like, just like for five, 10 minutes. Like, what was going through your mind? Schools want to get rid of Huck Finn. Many schools have got rid of Huckleberry Finn. They don't teach it because exactly of my experience. Exactly my experience. They use, you were, uses offensive language. And many, many school district, districts no longer teach Huckleberry Finn. We read, if you read, if you remember the story, Jewish people, they sin. The golden calf. God says, we're going to destroy the Jews. We're going to destroy, rebuild. Moses prays to God. And God teaches Moses the 13 attributes of God's mercy. Does everyone remember that? Hashem, Hashem, God is merciful. He's compassionate. 13 attributes of God's mercy. And ends, pokate avon avos, that God, he goes ahead and he'll punish, 
you know, people for their sins, he'll punish you, and he'll only and he'll punish your children and grandchildren. Come and ask, punish children and grandchildren. That goes against a very non-Jewish idea. And Torah tells us very clearly, you know, people are accountable for their own shortcomings. People are responsible for their own sins. I'm not responsible for my dad's sins. Why does God say I'm going to punish kids for their dad's sins? Explains Rashi, quotes it's really a passage of the Talmud. This is we're talking about situations where children replicate the sins of their fathers. Dad sins, and then the kids follow in their foot, that foot, in those footsteps, and continue to sin. They're held extra accountable. Now, the Talmud doesn't explain why. I have a theory, I might be wrong, but my theory is. You know, our previous generation, parents, people who came before us, they can either be tremendous inspirations for us, or they can be cautionary tales of what to avoid. And if a person goes ahead and he's got their parents were sinful, and you went ahead and you continued in those very ways, you gave up the opportunity to learn, that's what I don't want to become. That's what I don't want to be. And I think part of the lesson is we should study history. Look at what happened before us. Don't try to cover up the warts. We come from a very imperfect past. And you need to see that the world was not a perfect place if you want to learn how to try to make it a little bit more perfect today. You read Huck Finn, you read Mark Twain, who's the greatest abolitionist of his generation. Now that book is not a racist book. That book was actually written with the exact opposite intent. It was written as a book of abolition. And yes, is the language offensive? Yes, I understand that. But if we're going to take that out of the curriculum, how are you going to expect the next kid like me to understand that that conversation I had on that bus was offensive? It's a terrible mistake. In certain, I don't think we should be taking canceling Huckfin. Huckfin should not be canceled. Keep him in. We'll end with the one last thing. The hour is late. We're going to end right here. One last statue. One last statue. It's one of the most prominent statues in all of DC. If you go down 16th Street, you're heading from north to south down 16th Street. 16th Street ends where? Smack in the White House. But right before it ends in the White House, it ends in something called Lafayette Square. Beautiful, big area, beautiful area right before the White House. And in the middle, smack in the middle. And you can see it from five miles away. As you go down 16th Street, you can see the White House right down. But right before the White House, there's a statue of one Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson's statue was defaced. They tried taking it down. It was famously, it was one of the, 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 the real subjects of cancel culture was Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, in my opinion, probably deserves to have a statue down. He was a bad person. People don't realize that. He was a, he was a really rotten guy. Now, did he do a lot for our country? Yes. But was he a deeply, he was a murderer, a killer, vicious, cruel, deeply bad person. Andrew Jackson is one of my least favorite historical figures. I hate Andrew Jackson. Like, that's my own two cents. I don't, I don't know if you take down the statue, don't take down the statue. But suffice it to say, historically, Andrew Jackson, the criticism that he gets, he deserves. He was a very, very bad person. Now, did he do a lot for our country? Yes. And that, therefore, is it hard to say, take down a statue? I don't know. you got to go figure out all these points. But he's a complicated guy. But I'll tell you what shouldn't have happened. What we saw back in 2020, take down a statue. What we saw was a mob. One of my rabbis wrote the following, and I want to read it. He was talking about 
the January 6th fiasco. And he said, I'm not really writing about January 6th. I'm talking about these types of riots and mobs. He says, any mob has two problems. A lack of das means a lack of using our brains and not regarding civility as a virtue. We saw the lack of das of our brains in the way the events unfolded. They follow the typical script of a populist revolt. Simple slogans, unencumbered by nuance and unburdened by proof. Stop the steal, the deep state, rigged election. These are serious accusations. In order to prove them, one needs a calm, deliberate forum to consider evidence and to weigh it. The courts of law repeatedly ruled that no material evidence was ever was even offered by those questioning the election. But rousing slogans were fired at machine gun pace. Calm and cerebral deliberation seem to be the furthest thing from people's minds. I make these comparisons understanding that there are important distinctions between the events of January 6th and the ones I'm about to mention. But if you have seen clips of extremist leaders rousing the masses, um, the dynamic is eerily familiar. People relish the simplicity of the message, the adrenaline rush, the ready solution to their woes, and a roar of thunderous satisfaction greets the speaker. This lack of employment of rational process and das, our brains, is but one half of the necessary ingredient. The other factor is not regarding civility as a virtue. People don't see menschlichkeit, civility, as a virtue, then what is to stop them when they become distraught or frustrated from behaving the way that mob did? We tend to have mental images of what is doable or praiseworthy action. If animal behavior is constantly pictured as fun or heroic, then given the chance, wouldn't that be our default behavior? If patience and civility are the hallmark of a loser, what would we want? Would we want to be a loser? He goes ahead and he says, you know what the Torah example of a mob is? Torah describes a mob as the cheta ego, the sin of the golden calf. You know, I know I probably just offended a lot of people with that, Jan and my rabbi did with that January 6th thing. I will stand by that the day I die. Making an accusation, you know, I don't know. Was it stolen? Was it not? That was a mob. Those people are not acting with das, with seicha, with intellect. There was a lack of civility. It wasn't just January 6th. It was those groups taking down Andrew Jackson's statue. Those are serious charges, serious considerations. Should we take down Andrew Jackson's statue? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, honestly. Personally, he's not my favorite historical figure. Did he accomplish a lot for this country? Absolutely. It's nuanced, as we've described. We went through many, many reasons why it's not so simple. It's not case by case. It's not one size fits all. There are many calculations. Was it stolen? The election? I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. It's a fact. It's not an opinion. Neither it was or it wasn't. Figure it out. But acting like a mob, taking down a statue like a mob, you know, that is not a total value. You want to say, I believe the election was stolen? We need to figure it out. A fair point come up with it using menschlichkeit, civility, being mavakish ms, seeing the truth. Person says, you know what, I think as a country, we need to think whether we should be having, you know, and praising statues and have monuments for someone like an Andrew Jackson. Fair point. Mob mentality is not a Jewish approach. I probably just offended a couple of people. That's fine. Hot topics. We're supposed to be offensive. We're supposed to have strong opinions. I believe ultimately cancel culture, again, it's not a case-by-case -case thing. They're very, very specific issues. And, you know, I don't know. It's not a clear-cut thing. I don't know about the Andrew Jackson thing. I'll end with one last thing. I think another option is keep the statue up, rewrite the plaque. Maybe that's a different way of doing it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. 
As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.